Hello, and welcome to Heritage Radio Network. This is We Dig Plants, where we bring the culture to horticulture. Our show today is broadcast from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, at 261 Moore Street, and is produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Nat Wiener. And today's sponsor is Acme Smoked Fish. Boing! <laughs> Acme. Acme. Acme Smoked Fish is located in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Acme has been a mainstay in New York's culinary landscape for over 55 years. Using old world recipes, Acme produces the finest smoked salmon, whitefish, sable, uh, and sable that discerning palates demand. For information on where to find Acme, Blue Hill Bay, or Ruby Bay products, visit www.acmesmokedfish.com. Speaking of fish, today we talk about <laughs> we thought we talk about fertilizer. How appropriate that we have a fish sponsor today. That's right. Fertilizer: the good, the bad, and the ugly, just like a, the spaghetti western. Now, in our business, Groundworks Inc. here in New York, we design, install, and maintain gardens. And we're always faced with a question of fertilizers. Are they bad? Which ones are good? What should I do as a homeowner that wants a great yield of vegetables but wants to be organic at the same time with a little effort? And, you know, we're not going to put smoked fish in the hole. So... <laughs> That's what the Indians would have done. Right. But no, I don't think our, our well-heeled New York clients would appreciate a smoked fish garden. <laughs> Their but cats would. They would, yes. And the neighborhood cats, too. So it's a big question. And one that, you know, while we're kidding around about it, it, it can be very confusing. You know, what is really, you know, what what's the appropriate one? So we're going to go into it in, in a lot of detail today. We have a a good show. We're going to cover a lot of topics. Um, you know, should you believe the PR rap, you know, that the chemical company is giving you, the government, the organic farmer, what will it cost me both in personal use and, you know, as a greater good use? So um, Alice is going to start with the synthetic uh, inorganic fertilizer discussion and sort of get to the meat of it. And then I'm going to talk about the more gentle and organic methods. And there's a lot of crossover and, you know, we think that to be a good gardener, it's important to understand both methods for balanced and historical appreciation and then to make the decision for yourself as to what's appropriate. Right. So this show we're calling Death and Life in Fertilizer, the topic of today's show. So first I want to just talk about the word fertilizer and fertile, um, which is defined as producing an abundance or inventing. It's capable of becoming something new inventive and I, I find that really really riddled with irony because you're talking about fertilizer and you're talking about newness and life but within this inherently is death and you can't you you can't forego that topic so um because you can't have one without the other basically so this is extremely interesting to me as i as i think about fertilizer and its history so it's an irony, actually, death and life intertwined. So let's start with the history of fertilizer and the origins of farming and man's use of land. So first, That's a big topic. Huh? It is. And I'm going to go through it. One, two, three. 20 minutes. <laughs> so the first fi fertilizer that was found was fish meal, hence acme. Um, and then, of course, there was bone meal, crushed bones and manure and dried blood and sewage and seaweed. Those are all organic. Sounds very appetizing. Natural <laughs> types of, of fertilizer. And that's what man in his farming 
career, you know, used. So also, um, as found in early agricultural practice, was the first green manure, where crops were cut and spread over the fields and left to rot in place. And this is this is a method that is used today a lot. It's, you know, you, you mow your grass and you leave the grass clippings on the ground and, and then they decompose and you have this great nutrient-rich fertilizer. It feeds itself. So, right, right. So the first scientific study of fertilizer was actually in 1550. It was a Frenchman named Bernard Palisay. Um, and he stated that since plants absorb minerals, soil would need to be replenished. So that was in 1550. So also in 1550 was another Frenchman, Oliver de Serre, who suggested crop rotation as a method to preserve soils. Um, and then in the 1670s, the English suggested fertilize, fertilizers to replace minerals and identified the necessary minerals for plant growth, which are phosphorus, potassium, nitrogen, sulfur, calcium, iron, and magnesium. And then, of course, there's the trace elements, zinc, cobalt, and copper, and the air elements of hydrogen and oxygen. So I think we all remember our periodic tables from seventh grade and, you know, the symbols and, and you know, elementary, like, soil basic soil composition so depending upon plants and soils these elements would need to be replaced from time to time so that was kind of the ethos basically of the era so a quick a quick review of the main three nitrogen as found in air and water and remember it's essential to all life forms Um, it's used for the synthesis of proteins nucleic acids and hormones so when plants are nitrogen deficient, they're marked by a reduced growth um, and yellowing of leaves. And then there's phosphorus, which is found in bone meal, um, uh, crushed bones. Uh, phosphates, as found in rocks, were discovered in the mid-1840s, and the first uh, superphosphate factory was established in 1843. And later, it was a byproduct of steel manufacturing called slag. So... The phosphorus, when, with regard to, to plant life, provides the energy to drive metabolic chemical reactions. So without enough phosphorus, plant growth is reduced and stunted. So potassium, uh, which is naturally found in seawater, is used for protein synthesis and other key plant processes. But that's evidenced by yellowing, um, spots of dead tissue on the leaves, weak stems and roots. And that's all indicative of plants that lack potassium. And those are the big three. Those are the big three. Those are the ones that are usually on the package. Those are the three numbers that that you Mm -hmm. see on fertilizer packages. So this wasn't really a problem in the United States and in Canada farming-wise, because our early political method was to simply move west and get new land uh, once the soils become depleted. So that's kind of our new world ethos. Just move and it'll be okay. But this, it it was a big problem, however, in Europe and in Asia, um, where the soils had been depleted and over-farmed and populations were growing. 
Yes. And how do you, you know, how do you replenish these soils so that you can create enough food to feed this population boom? Yeah, they realized that the the Europeans would soon be starving by the 19th century. Exactly. They realized that the the population was growing at a point where they didn't have enough arable land exactly. to and feed it was, themselves. And it was just 1550 when people really started to think about like, hey, you know, we've this so that's 300 years. Of, yeah. of you know watching the land become yeah you know you know on a personal note um, my mother my my parents were both grew up on farms and they remember um, I remember them telling me that they remember um, when the first synthetic fertilizers appeared and their yields were astronomically greater well they, exactly they saw yeah. you know before that they had used animal manures and also green manures right. that's all they had and once they were able to purchase the synthetic fertilizers, they, their, their crop yields were much, much higher. Right. It was so, a seminal moment. Right. So what was needed was a way actually to create more nitrogen. It was a way to fix the nitrogen from the air, secure it, and isolate it. Um, so all the scientific investigation is beginning to occur. People are starting to realize that this is really becoming an issue, and... Uh, we're talking about the late 1700s and the early 1800s at this point, and the first attempts at um, industrializing agriculture. So it's 1813, and there's a man named Humphrey Davy who writes a paper, the first paper really, on agricultural chemistry. Um, in the 1840s, another Frenchman, a chemist named Jean-Baptiste Boussingard, studies the effects of plants and nitrogen and he wonders why plants can grow in nitrogen poor soil but he discovered that plants have nitrogen fixing bacteria at their roots which is astronomical so 10 years later the first chemistry uh, portfolio is produced by a german in the 1850s and its application and its physiology is examined in relation to plant life so like Carmen said, by 1900, uh, European scientists recognized that unless a way of capturing and increasing nitrogen, I unless there was a way to do that, uh, the growth of the human population would grind to a halt very painfully and very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, European land was overused and food sources were beginning to wane. So in 1909, a German-Jewish scientist, Fritz Haber, develops a process to synthetically manufacture nitrogen. He realizes that all this usable nitrogen on Earth had at one time been fixed by soil bacteria living on the roots of such plants as peas and alfalfa. So uh, another way that nitrogen is fixed is by electrical shock lightning, uh, which can also break the nitrogen bonds in the air but this is of course a limited natural process <laughs> you can't wait for a storm yeah. to fix nitrogen what are you, you going to be ben franklin out there all the time you know <laughs> not, so not going to work it's uncontrollable really so he figures out a way to to to, to capture this nitrogen um and and he he does so for kind of a sinister application um uh nitrogen compounds are crucial to making explosives but they're also equally important to fertilizers and plant food 
production. So in 1914, at the beginning of World War I, Haber, um, Haber's country, Germany, was cut off from supplies of nitrogen. Britain actually blockaded the export um, the export of nitrates from Chile. So gunpowder and growing food was becoming increasingly difficult. So Germany looks to Haber and his new process of nitrogen fixing. So without um, without nitrogen fixing, the the war or had had Britain not blocked this this transport um, and and the war probably would have ended quickly. Um, the Germans would have run out of food, food and, and ammunition. ammunition. <laughs> exactly. So Haber's invention really fed the German war machine until the war's end in 1918. Literally and figuratively. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, after four years of fighting and millions of death. So the 1909 Haber discovery is really the key to life as we know it now. He captures and can manufacture nitrogen, and no longer is it a mystery. We now understand how it works and how to manipulate it. And from the manufacture of gunpowder, uh, Germany can continue to feed its people and protect its interests at that time. So at the same time, world growth is booming and populations are spreading on many fronts and in many lands. So this one discovery changes the world as it was known in the early 1900s. Haber's technology allowed Germany to continue making bombs from synthetic nitrates. Later, as the war became uh, mirrored in the trenches of France, Haber put his genius for chemistry to work and developed poisonous gas, ammonia, and then chlorine. He subsequently discovered the gas that was used in Hitler's concentration camps. Um, which is actually completely ironic because in World War II, because he was of Jewish heritage, he was forced to, to leave Germany, and he ended up dying alone. Um, oh, that's so weird. Yeah, and it was his invention that... And weren't they uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize? Yes, they were. <laughs> which is also ironic. Yeah. In 1913, um, Karl Bosch refined and marketed Haber's nitrogen-fixing process to establish the Haber-Bosch process. So this is the process that under high temperatures and very high pressures, um, hydrogen and nitrogen are combined to produce ammonia. And that was the bomb making initiative for World War One. And if you look on a bag of synthetic fertilizer, you will see that it's ammonium nitrate or ammonium sulfate. That is That's the it. <laughs> so yeah. So from sinister origins comes this byproduct um, that has this progressive progress, actually, in food production, and then in the resulting population growth. So ironically, in 1915, Haber's on the front lines, directing the first gas attack in military history. And he supervised the release of 150 tons of chlorine chlorine to blow across the fields of Flanders, Belgium, um, which spread panic and death um, among the Allied soldiers opposing the German forces. Wow. So then he had to flee because of his Jewish heritage, and he died alone, um, still patriotic to Germany. And this was before the concentration camp uh, gassing. This was a year before that mm. all that gassing started. So... Um, you know, it has these sinisters, sinister origins. And uh, I think when you're talking about fertilizer, you can't avoid the topic of death in the topic of life. 
Yeah, on many levels. Yeah. Our life, our lives as we know it simply wouldn't exist um, as, you know, as it is without without this discovery. It's exactly. essential for our... And today, yeah. more than 500 million tons of artificial fertilizers are produced each year, um, sustaining nearly uh, 40% of the population. So billions of people would not exist without this. And as our dependence upon synthetic fertilizers only increases, um, the global count will move upward. So now that 100 years have passed, we're learning, like all things, that a balance must be put into effect immediately. Uh, We have to kind of combat the added sinister duality of fertilizer and their environmental impacts um, so that they are used in in a sustainable and just way. So back to plants... The effects of fertilizers on plants um, are that plants cannot absorb all the refined nitrates in these chemical fertilizers, which then leach into the environment. Um, They particularly pollute major lakes and streams, causing dead zones, and then they're in turn um, consumed by the public, which leads to kidney failure and urinary disorders, and um, it's a carcinogenic especially to infants, babies. These nitrates actually combine with the bloodstream and the blood actually blocks the ability to store oxygen in in small children. Wow. So um, synthetic fertilizers can leach due to rain um, and irrigation washing, um, you know, because it washes down below the root level, so it's into the soil. And um, nitrogen especially proves vulnerable to leaching. So um, in addition, uh, inorganic fertilizers have a high concentration of acid, such as hydrochloric or sulfuric acid, which leads to high high soil acidity, which actually destroys the nitrogen-fixing bacteria on those roots and the ability to supply the plants with the oxygen. So applying inorganic, uh, an inorganic fertilizer dries out the seedlings and the plants due to the chemical salts, um, which builds up toxic levels into the soil and creates chemical imbalances. And that's where we are today is th- there's a lot of imbalance. Yeah, um, and if you've ever seen, I'm sure everyone's had a house plant where there's been this white salty crust develop mm-hmm. on the pot mm-hmm. on the top of the soil. Those are all the, the sort of residues and residues from the fertilizers right. that have built up that the plant can't use. And where does that go? It goes into the water stream mm-hmm. and then it goes into our bodies, you yep. know, I mean, as, as like a generalization. But um, the methods of applying fertilizers are to either top dress and broadcast or to side dress along the crop row. Um, fertigation is the act of the injection of fertilizer into the irrigation system. Um, and then there's foliar feeding, which is actually spraying the fertilizer solution onto the leaves. So fertilizer, fertile. Remember at the top of the show, we were talking about it's the ability to make new and to invent. And I find it fascinating that the story of man's kind of maturity on this earth is steeped in his death. There are indeed two ways of looking at mankind. So the story of fertilizer is really a story of duality, of death and control and life and renewal. 
and of the human hand and the surprising ironic results it's it's a good and bad situation and like carmen was saying it just needs to be balanced Mm -hmm. so let's take a break from the doom and gloom listen to a little rem it's the end of the world as we know it and we'll come back to talk about a more gentle and organic method you're listening to we dig plants heritage radio network I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, turn world, serve its own needs, dummy, serve your own needs, beat it up an ox, speak, grunt, no strength, the ladder starts to clatter with fear, fight down, high, wire in a fire, representing seven games in a government for hire in a combat site, left to us are coming in a hurry with the furies breathing down your neck, team my team reporters, baffle Trump, Kevin Kraft, look at that, no plane, fine, then, uh oh, overflow, population, common food, but it'll do, save yourself, serve yourself, world, serve its own needs, listen to your heart, Hi, welcome back. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. And I feel fine. Yes. <laughs> I'm in an air-conditioned box right now. <laughs> and I feel talking fine. About um, so Alice was just talking about the synthetic, and now we're going to talk about the organic. On our houseplant show, we talked about organic versus synthetic fertilizers with respect to indoor plants. And um, in our indoor gardens and vegetable plots and lawns, things are a little bit more complicated. The plants in the soil are in soil that is a living thing, hopefully not sterilized. And we often have many types of plant with different needs in the same area, as opposed to like a house plant, which is in a Mm self-contained kind of environment. Mm -hmm. Mixed border. Yes, mixed border. (laughs) It's different needs, all these issues. So we define organic from a gardener's point of view as a sort of as as a plant food or soil amendment that is derived from natural sources not coal or petrochemicals like alice was talking about and of course as she mentioned farmers have been using manures and composting things for millennia out of necessity and they have an understanding of of resource and conservation that we can all benefit from but many of us of course no longer have this option you know, to, to be composting if you live in an urban environment. But there are more choices than ever now in the organic area. In fact, um, a lot of organic fertilizers now are byproducts of other industries, mm-hmm. such as fishing or lobstering. And that not only benefits our gardens, but it reduces waste in the, that would, you know, have been in the waste stream. Some, like blood meal or bone meal, may be objectionable to some vegans or vegetarian so it's important to read the label and know the source that your product is coming from Mm -hmm. and also try and buy local instead of having it shipped in from Mm -hmm. you know canada or something right it's always a fine line and and this is a topic that's you know probably reiterated on this radio station like you know 10 times a day local versus organic if you're going to choose one or the other each has its pros and cons Mm -hmm. so you know before you apply the organic fertilizers you know we have to have an understanding of their soil and what the plants might need. One of the best, I think, is adding organic compost to your soil. And now you can buy compost. You don't have to just make it. And what we love about compost is that it can reduce the amount of fertilizer treatments that your plants need. It actually reduces because it, it adds more than just the three big nutrients mm-hmm. and the trace elements. 
The addition of compost will add, um, it will also improve drainage and also help your plant's immune system. It feeds the roots rather than just the showy leaves. It feeds everything, yeah. yeah. So if you don't have the space to compost, you can usually buy it at a local garden center. Um, You want to make sure that it says humus or compost. Garden manure is a very different thing and is made not from plants, but from animal waste. Mm -hmm. You know, and you'll sometimes find dehydrated cow manure and some people find that objectionable you know it's too smelly especially in a smaller garden Um, you have to understand as I said what kind of fertilizers your plants may need and one of the things if you're making your first garden is you'll want to test your soil which will give you an idea of the quality of your soil and what it might be lacking and then buy the fertilizer for your needs because there's so many different kinds bat guano kelp meal, blood meal, liquid seaweed, rock phosphate, alfalfa meal, crab meal, <laughs> cotton seaweed, <laughs> green sand, gypsum, feather meal, and bone meal. It's it's difficult to know which one to use. So Alice and I in our gardens and for those of our clients um, use locally made compost and some products that we like such as Healthy Start, which has mycorrhiza and hollytone or plantone. Those smell pretty strong, but we like them because they're made from organic sources and they're kind of blended for general use. So you don't have to be a chemist and blend together all right. different things. And they di- the smell dissipates quickly. It's not like it sticks around and you're no. trying to barbecue no. and you're like, I can't be outside because it smells so bad. It smells <laughs> like fish meal. No, it, so, it goes away quickly. Yeah, so if you're starting a garden, till the soil and add compost first. And then add the fertilizer to the planting hole. You don't have to broadcast it. That's also a mistake that a lot of people make is they just put more than is recommended, thinking that more is better. And as we were talking about in the first half of the show, um, it's going to go to waste. The plant is only going to take um, what it needs. Mm-hmm. You know, Unlike humans, plants are a little smarter. They don't just keep eating. Well, and sometimes <laughs> you know, if it's... As their needs. And, yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's not like they're big gourmands, like gouging Obese plants. Yeah. Imagine obese plants. <laughs> but also, um, if it's applied too heavily, it could actually sometimes burn the roots. Mm-hmm. Even um, organic ones can burn. Yeah, if it's, if it's not spread around for instance yeah. and you have to dumped in one exactly. location and, and uh, sometimes you'll read in books about something called the drip line you should apply the fertilizer around the drip line well <laughs> you look at a plant what's the drip line yeah. there's no drip line the drip line is the is it the, didn't come with a part yeah <laughs> i'm oh missing God. a part well when when it rains or when when it when you water the drip line is is the line of leaves the outer part of the plant um where um it water drips off the leaves and that's like the outer perimeter the circumference, the circumference. Yeah. so the roots sort of mirror the top of the plant so if you put broadcast fertilizer around the drip line you know that you're applying it in a sort of further out where the roots are not can right at the trunk and where the roots can reach for it exactly and not just right at the trunk i mean there are right. roots close to the trunk but the roots spread much farther than just right around the trunk area so that's what the drip line is it's not some kind of mountain climbing um equipment <laughs> goat <laughs> Um, so I wanted to go a little bit more into detail um, about the specific ones that, that are good and, and what they are used for. Um, bat guano, which is kind of funny. Bat, bat guano is actually one of the best natural fertilizers. Um, it comes straight from the butts of bats into <laughs> your yard or garden. <laughs> 
Try and say that three times fast. And actually, they farmers and gardeners have used bat guano as a fertilizer for hundreds of years. I mean, they could just go and get it out of caves. It was free, right? You know, so um, so they're not harvesting it from the bottom of the bat. Bat. No, they're actually <laughs> no. They're it's just a byproduct. Exactly. Of so cave dwelling. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, the manufacturers of this product state that they follow the high standards of Bat Conservation International, so you can feel good about buying this natural garden and bat-friendly <laughs> fertilizer. <laughs> and know that your caves are clean. <laughs> you have a clean cave. How do the bats feel about it? Um, well, the reason Bat Guano is good is because it has a high humus content. And a high humorous content. Yes, obviously. <laughs> and works great as a soil builder and fertilizer. And it's usually rated... 10 3 1. So, what 10 is is the nitrogen. Mm-hmm. The first number is nitrogen. And the second fertilizer that's highly recommended is fish meal fertilizer. And like bat guano, it's a natural organic fertilizer that was traditionally used by gardeners and farmers before the advent of the synthetics. Now, we were joking in the beginning of the show about the Indians teaching the pilgrims how to put a fish in each corn planting hole, mm-hmm. but it actually works, you know? It's fantastic, yeah. So you're not going to go fishing and stick a fish in there, so you can buy fish meal, and it also contains the trace elements, which makes it um, a really good plant food. And fish meal is usually rated like ten five zero, and again, lots of nitrogen. So, which you know, all plants need nitrogen. But let's say um, you're growing lettuces or greens. Those mm-hmm. are you know plants that have lots of foliage, mm-hmm. you know, surface. Those would use a lot of nitrogen. So that would be a good one for that, and it works really quickly. And it also provides that um, phosphorus that Alice was talking about, um, which is also important for growth. One of my favorites, which I find less smelly and objectionable, because I, I don't like the fish smell all the time, is kelp meal fertilizer. <laughs> and that's made from brown seaweed harvested from cold ocean waters. Once Arr. It's, Arr. <laughs> so once it's harvested, the kelp is dried and ground up to produce a really good organic fertilizer. And the dried kelp maintains a high, uh, high content of plant growth hormones, minerals, and organic material. And also what's nice about it is that it's a slow release fertilizer. So it's a sustained release of nutrients. And those um, many organic kelp fertilizers are fully approved for organic gardening. And they work great like on trees and on flowers and also on your lawn. If Mm -hmm. you have a large area of lawn that you want to feed, instead of using those like really intense toxic lawn fertilizers, try kelp meal Mm -hmm. because it goes a long way. It's usually in a liquid form. And you mix it with water and spray. And then you can spray it, you know, and it also works well as a foliar, as Alice was saying, synthetic fertilizers are sometimes spread on the surface of leaves because believe it or not, plants can absorb nutrients from their leaves as well. Mm -hmm. So that's um, a good one. Um, Another one, a lot of people grow tomatoes that's probably the number one sort of uh, diy homeowner everybody crop usually you you know you even the most novice gardener can grow a tomato or a basil plant Mm -hmm. so one of the ones that we like for that is called tomato tone and it's specifically um, designed to grow tomatoes and it's a slow release fertilizer that helps the tomato plants grow for an extended period of time if you think about it tomato plants have to produce a pretty intense fruit in a short amount of time usually like 75 or 80 days mm-hmm. from the time of seed yeah so it is a heavy feeder sometimes on some of our shows alice and i have talked about heavy feeders roses things like that well tomatoes are heavy feeders so 
the tomato tone fertilizer um, is really good, and it not only div- not only encourages good foliar growth, but also um, fruit fruits fruits as well. Um, and the same company also makes uh, organic vegetable fertilizer, which you can you know broadcast across your vegetable garden if you have um, an assortment of greens and things that you're growing. Espoma Garden Tone is the yeah, name of that. That's a really good one as well because we use Holly Tone, which is um, for acid loving plants, yeah, evergreens, things like that. Now a lot of, there's a lot of talk of compost tea. And in the past, you kind of had to do it yourself and use like a muslin bag and, you know, but now um, they sell these little pouches that you can just put in a watering can like you would put a tea bag in a cup and you soak it and then you pour that. And I'm, I really love liquid fertilizers. Mm-hmm. I love how it, you the know, drenching. Yeah, I feel like it goes, it sort of dissipates faster into mm-hmm. the soil and gets absorbed by the roots a little bit quicker. Um, I mentioned roses, and roses are very important um, to feed regularly. Most people don't succeed with roses because they don't feed them enough. Mm-hmm. And Alice and I are not big proponents of feeding all the time and pushing growth. But roses also have, you know, produ- put a lot of energy into flower production. Mm-hmm. And the flower, you know, require the reproduction to produce the flower, it takes a lot of energy from the plant. So it's really important. And Espoma makes rose tone, which is a great organic uh, rose fertilizer that's been used by like professional gardeners to win those like prize winning roses at the garden shows. So, and it has all also the like um, 15 essential nutrients, you know, the trace elements and everything. It's slow release, it won't burn the plants. And it also stimulates beneficial microbes to build healthy rose, roses. And as we know, roses are prone to disease and are you know very attractive to every kind of insect. Mm-hmm. So um, you can apply it right to the potted rose or bare root plantings or even in the rose beds themselves. Um, another one, which w- sounds a little macabre, but um, is a really good fertilizer, is liquid bone meal. Liquid oh. bone. Those yeah. are two opposite <laughs> words. Yeah, you think of something really <laughs> solid. Um, and that's really good for feeding fruits and trees and uh, vegetables and crops that require extra phosphorus during the early bud formation and fruit enlargement because the phosphorus helps in fruit formation in mm-hmm. the plant. Um, so liquid bone meal is great. It also has calcium, which improves the soil and nutrient capacity. And it's also useful for correcting um, calcium deficiencies in plants that require el- extra calcium, like tomatoes, mm-hmm. that, you know, plants that have kind of specific needs. Um, I want to touch a little bit about um, mycorrhizal fungi. I, this is my <laughs> favorite. I love this. Um, these fungi attach themselves to plant roots and they help plants to make use of the organic chemicals in the soil. So as Alice was saying, plant the, these some fungi help plants to fix nitrogen mm-hmm. and other fungi help plants uh, absorb different kinds of nutrients. So it's, they, there's a really wonderful symbiotic relationship between plants and, fun, and the fungi kingdom. And I think Alice and I bacterias. are going to do a show about that sometime yeah. in the future. I think it'd be really great to talk about the underground laboratory that is, you know, a plant's root system. Yeah. 
Actually, uh-huh. um, Erica Wides on the um, Why We Cook show talks a lot about this with regard to your food intake mm-hmm. and getting those good bacteria back into your body to help uh, in digestion. And, and basically, it's the same thing, really, that we're talking about. Yeah, we have a symbiotic relationship with fungi, too, in our gut. Uh-huh, exactly. Know, and bacteria. Exactly. So the plants require it, too. And mm-hmm. it's really amazing because it's invisible to us. Mm-hmm. That's what I find so fascinating about it and yet so essential. Mm-hmm. Um, another kind of oddball fertilizer which people don't think about um, is horticultural cornmeal isn't that <laughs> kind of biz- corny yeah. I know it, it, it seems like a waste I'm going to throw some polenta down a hole and that's- <laughs> <laughs> there's a hole in my polenta <laughs> what happened to my polenta I went dear Liza, to dear Liza. <laughs> no Italian would pour cornmeal down a hole but anyway um, horticultural cornmeal actually helps to strengthen the beneficial soil fungi too and these beneficial soil organisms help fight off the harmful fungi that attack your plants. So they're kind of like, you know, they're the warriors underground, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's really important for vegetable vegetable crops, which are susceptible to fungal diseases, you know. Trichoderma. You, yeah. Um, so it helps build up the quality of the soil and you can use it on grass or tomatoes. And you can also use it to safely remove algae from ponds rather than using like awful chlorine yeah chlorine (laughs) to kill um there's a really good guide um to fertilizers in um this book by warren schultz it's called um the chemical free lawn by warren schultz and um we will we will post a link to it and also um a more detailed organic fertilizer and amendment guide um on our facebook um fan page so um we hope that uh, this helps to clarify the mystery that is fertilizers from scary to great in uh, 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, please join us on Facebook and let us know what questions you have. We're going to post um, some of the telltale signs that our plants exhibit and trying to tell us what kind of fertilizers they need. They can't talk. So like our pets, it's a hope and a prayer that we as humans are doing the right thing. Um, this is We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network broadcasting from Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn, home to industry, manufacturing, and now great gardens, pizza, and informative radio content. Thank you for listening.